Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. You're listening to the Wicked Library. <laughs> Roses are red, violets are blue. If you can't take horror stories, this podcast is not for you! (laughs) I'm a poet and didn't even know it. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Wicked Library's Women in Horror Month episode. I'm Cynthia Lohman, an executive producer on the show, and I'm honored to be your host for this episode full of fantastic women horror writers. We are happy to participate in this important and significant initiative to support and showcase the work of women in horror. The playing field has never been more level than it is now, but that doesn't mean it is level. Women have been creating and contributing to the horror genre well before Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, on which her name wasn't published until the second edition. Women have helped make this genre what it is, from Mary Shelley to Shirley Jackson, to Nana Reeve Dew to Jessica McHugh, Octavia E. Butler to Anne Rice, Daphne du Maurier to Gwendolyn Keist. And these are just some of the writers. Explore more women in horror through film, music, television, art, voice acting. The list is endless. Women in Horror Month is a great launching pad to see how many centuries women have spent scaring you and to learn what some of you and we at the Wicked Library have always known. Every month is Women in Horror Month. Today's episode features six women writers, Pippa Bailey, Cameron Ulam, Nora B. Peavy, Katie Jane, Scarlett R. Algie, and B. Renard. If you enjoy these stories, please explore more of their work by visiting their bio pages at thewickedlibrary.com, where you can find other ways to support these excellent authors. Our narrators for these stories are Erica Sanderson, Jessica McAvoy, Heather Thomas, Nelson Piles, Cynthia Lohman, and Mary Murphy. All stories are scored and performed by Nico Viteze of We Talk of Dreams. Our first tale is on a cold basement floor, written by Pippa Bailey, narrated by Erica Sanderson. I scoop a stack of files from my desk and head out of the office towards the basement. At this time on a Friday, we don't have much left to file away, but it normally falls to me. Especially at this time of year, the festive period, when everyone is desperate to get home and force a glass of gin down their throat. I'm no different, although I'm more partial to a ginger beer. Penny and I got a brewing kit from Dad last Christmas. It's fantastic. I've still got a photo of Penny on my phone, blacked out on the bathroom floor. Brian, my manager, heads out of the courthouse. He forces the creaking ornate door back and props it open before swiping out with his ID badge. Kate... I'll see you Monday. I'm not in till Tuesday. I'll see you Tuesday then. With Brian gone, I have the run of the place. Not that it makes much difference with all of the security cameras dotted about. The courthouse is a turreted carved stone monument to justice. The basement is half and half. The front is new brick, gloss painted and littered with spiders, 
However, the vault at the back, behind a three-inch thick steel door, looks like a gothic mortuary, which it once had been, with arched ceilings, crumbling stone, and row upon row of decaying files. I snatch the basement vault key from the front desk and swing it around my finger, like a jailer from an outdated crime film. (laughs) The old ones are the best. I start whistling my favourite song, Can't Stop by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Happy songs make work feel far less worky. I push the door to the basement steps open and wait, peering into the darkness. The lights hum and buzz before flashing a couple of times and stuttering on. Normally I start down the stairs before the lights come on, but being the last one in the building, it's always best to take precautions. When I say best, it's because Penny would kill me if I died or something. I know how that sounds, but it's totally accurate. She's vicious. I slip the key into the lock and twist. It clunks free and I pop it into my pocket. I've heard horror stories of people accidentally being trapped inside, so I always keep the lock and key on me. I slide the thick steel bolt and wrench the heavy door open. A burst of cold air and plume of dust spiral out from the dark inside. I take a deep breath of stagnant air and step into the vault. The lights in here are motion activated, and more than once I found myself flailing in the black to get them back on. Beyond this room, corridors stretch onwards into the murky distance like the catacombs under Paris, except instead of skulls and bones, we have skeletal 60-year-old rusted metal shelving filled with aged cardboard boxes like rows of wonky teeth. Each box is named and numbered to match the contents. Stepping into the second room, I release my breath, the stench of the vault creeping into my nostrils. Decay and mildew and old books. You know the smell. It's somewhere between vanillin and dust, if dust could really be described as a smell. I head around the corner into a corridor. The click of my shoes on the poured grey-painted concrete is muffled as the floor changes to dust and brick, clouds of orange coating my feet. I click my tongue against the roof of my mouth and count boxes, looking for the correct year and number. When pulling the mustier boxes, it's recommended to go slow. It gives you a chance to dodge a waterfall of desiccated beetle and spider carcasses. J29, J30, J31. Ah, there it is. I reach for the box and drag it over to one of the few tables dotted around, each littered with old note scraps, other items people had hunted down, acronym words and faded ink listing an array of case numbers. I flip the box open and flick to the right place before shoving the correct papers inside. That's about as complicated as it gets, unless it's one of those boxes shoved in the highest furthest corners of the vault. I hate those cases. He squeezed sideways down a narrow pathway, dodging an array of rat poison traps and an attempt to keep my skirt away from the cobwebs. On Fridays, Penny meets me at the bus stop and we pop into the local before walking home. It's better if I don't look like something out of a horror movie whilst quaffing a disgustingly fruity beverage at the Horny Haggis pub. Last time that happened, Leanne, the bar manager, made me sit on a plastic bag so I didn't ruin her chairs. Honestly, it wasn't that bad. Although Penny did spend most of the night picking dead bugs out of my hair. This week, though, no cuddles at the bus stop and no horny haggis. Penny is down south, visiting her mother. Mother never liked me much. At Christmas, Penny splits her time between me and her mother. Mother gets her the week before and forces as much fun as possible into a few days, insisting again, Are you sure you can't find a nice boyfriend instead? This year, her mother has found an online group for rainbow mums, after years of Penny telling her mum that she was gay and that she needed to accept it. The turning point was a Facebook group of menopausal women posting glitter memes and pride images. It makes me sick to think that the only way Mother Dearest could accept her daughter is when it makes her feel important and special, the fucking narcissist. I guess it's better to finally hear her calling me Penny's girlfriend and not just a friend. It's been refreshing not to have Penny crying down the phone. So I guess I can live with Mother doing this for her own agenda if it gets my name on the Christmas card. Although, I'm sure she'll lose her shit when we tell her we're getting married next year. I scrape a stool along the gritty brick dust floor towards the shelf, the constant buzzing lighting back here ebbing and flowing between a strong orange glow and a dull, wincing flicker. I grab the box and tug. The bloody thing is stuck, so I tug again. It shoots backwards like a lead weight carrying me with it. 
I let go of the box which continues to fly over my shoulders, spilling papers into the air. There's no time to reach for anything, though I'd like to say I have a triumphant moment and grasp a shelf and save myself. The stool slides out from under my feet and rockets across the room and I hit the floor. My back, shoulders and head smash against the crumbled brickwork. After that, only dark. I awake in the pitch black to a throbbing pain in my head and the taste of blood, but luckily no pain anywhere else. I'd expected something, maybe a broken arm, shattered leg, at least some bruising. But I don't hurt anywhere but my head. I move my hand towards the back of my head. I move my hand towards the back of my head. I move my hand towards the back of my head. My hand doesn't move, nor does my arm. I try the other one. Nothing. No movement. Not even a quiver. Help! I think it's an instinctive thing people do, whether they know they're alone or not. We still scream and cry and beg if we think it's going to somehow save us from whatever terror we're facing. Help me! I kick my legs, but as I expect, they don't react. I turn my head. It creaks and twists, facing yet another wall of darkness. I couldn't have been out for that long, could I? I strain my ears for any sound. Bzzz. The lights. The lights hum like a hive of bees, but I see no flickering orange glow. I blink, and again, and again. Clunk. I know that sound too. That's the sound of the lights shutting off. I cry, warm tears trickling down my face and plopping onto the dusty floor. I turn my head back and forth, trying to get the light to turn back on, but it isn't enough. How long until Monday? No one's going to find me until next week. I lie for what feels like hours. My tears run dry and the cold bites at my nose and lips. Sleepy, I whistle to try and stay awake. Can't stop. Looping over and over, growing quieter with every rendition, until it too fades to nothing. Next, we have the Hearing Aid Museum, written by Cameron Ulam, narrated by Jessica McAvoy. A choking vacuum cleaner hummed across the therapy room's carpeting, drowning out the thunderstorm that currently pelted university grounds. Danny Russo, a graduate student of the speech and hearing department, pulled its cord from the wall, stepping back to assess her work. Clean as a whistle. She would eat off that carpet, but she knew the atrocities which may have spilt into the fibers. Speech therapy wasn't always a cushy job. Sometimes the clients were pleasant, smiling children, budding to practice their R sounds. Other times, a screaming five-year-old tore about the room, hawking loogies at the student clinician who could only smile and chase their client around the cubicle with the promise of a gold star sticker. Danny chuckled, remembering her first client. After two semesters of failed applications, she had finally earned a spot in the university's graduate program. Three rejections had come in the same semester, around the same time that Danny's younger sister, Gabriella, had died. The pair had been driving to a party through a blizzard when Danny hit a patch of black ice, sliding through the intersection where they'd been T-boned by a semi. Gab had been killed instantly. The year of combined tragedies had butchered her confidence to ribbons. Depression had led her to her parents' medicine cabinet, where she'd swallowed anything she could shake out of an orange bottle. But with the support of her family, she had lowered her head and plowed onward, securing a spot in the program through hard work and a stellar GPA. She'd done it for Gabby. Along with her graduate position, Danny had secured a job working the clinic's front desk. Finished early with her morning duties, she carried the prehistoric vacuum cleaner into the hallway, 
stashing it in the closet and heading back to the front office to get a jump start on her weekend assignments. Fuck. Her laptop was nowhere in sight. She must have left it in the car. Danny reached for her keyring and, in a panic, realized that was also missing. Trying the clinic's front door confirmed the obvious. She had locked herself inside. Danny checked the time on her phone. 6.25 a.m. Okay, big deal. So she would have to wait another half hour for the department chairs to arrive. She much preferred that over calling anyone to break down the door. Danny snagged a bottle of Windex that sat tucked under the front desk, along with a fat roll of paper towels, busying herself as she cleaned the department windows. Along the clinic's main hall was a twin pair of glass display cabinets, the typewriter embossed brass above reading the Hearing Aid Museum. She smeared cobalt blue liquid over the glass, assessing the ancient assistive technology inside, a collected cacophony of antique hearing aids, little Zippo-looking boxes and time-charred plastic earpieces dangling from coiled cables. She found the name comical, a whole museum existing in just two tiny bookshelves. Danny tossed the soiled towels in the trash and made her way back to the front desk. The first high-frequency whine sounded from the hallway as Danny stared down at her phone, slicing through another row of animated fruit. Jamming pinkies in both ears, she walked down the hall, assuming the faulty fire alarm's battery was low. As she approached, however, it became clear that the fuzzy hum originated from inside the display cabinets, from inside the hearing aid museum. Danny supposed an old battery inside one of the hearing aids could have held its zing, randomly bursting to life after all these years, but it was strange. Gripping both sides of the display, Danny gave the contents a vending machine jostle. The buzzing continued, and as she shook harder, a few of the aides tumbled from their display perch. I wonder. The buzz shifted to a radio frequency screech. Was that a voice? Wonder what happened to Charles. Do you know, dear? Recoiling from the glass, Danny's back slammed into the parallel wall. A few more of the hearing aids awoke. The voices rang in a garbled symphony, their messages blurring with simultaneous sobs, even laughter, a television with every station blaring. What the actual? The words fell out of Danny's mouth as she sank to the floor. Forgot to take the dog out. Don't have enough to pay for the chemotherapy. Make sure to show the grandkids my picture. Don't want them to forget me. Tried to kill yourself, you stupid girl. Danny scrambled up from the floor. Oh, stop that. No, you're going to scare. They all know your secret suicidal little brat. Worthless little wife. Why not just end it and save everyone the trouble? No good for anyone. No good for Gabriella. The demonic voice flipped a switch in Danny's mind. A red fog light in the darkest corner. Tears streamed down her cheeks, and she grabbed a statue from the nearest table, smashing it through the display's thin glass. Garbled laughter emanated up from the devices, intertwined with startled gasps. Danny frantically sorted through the hearing aids, ripping plugs and wires out. They bleated on, warbling and shrieking, whispering, crying. It was too much. Danny would just plug her ears run back up to the front desk and blare music on her cell phone until someone arrived. Danny, my head. Danny. A too familiar voice, one that froze the air where it hung in her lungs. You weren't paying attention. Now I'm here, all alone in this place. It's your fault, Danny. No. The words sighed out of her. Oh, yes. You did this. I still love you, Danny. 
something wet dripped from Danny's elbow. She looked down to see blood running down her forearm from the slit of an inch-wide gash. It oozed to the floor in a small pool. She must have cut herself on the broken glass. A long, hooked shard that had cracked away from the shattered glass lay beside the puddle, glistening atop the smoky linoleum. That's it, Danny. Come join me. We can be together. Don't you want to be together forever? Guilt ravaged her heart. It had been an accident. They had both been drinking, but she hadn't been drunk. The truck had come out of nowhere. But if she hadn't been buzzed... Danny bent at the knees, lifting the glass and cradling it in her shaking hands. Is that really you, Gab? No, no, don't listen to it. That's not your sister. Run, girl. It wants you. Shut up! A voice cried out in pain, and the sound of Danny's sister's voice dripped back into her ears. It was heaven to hear her again. Danny had begged for the chance so many nights. Just one more chance to say, I love you. But was there a better option? Could she really see her sister again? Be with her. You can be with me, Danny. Do it for me. I need my big sister. Danny coughed out a sob, wiping the water from her eyes and sniffling snot back into her nose. She fingered the glass, bringing it to the soft flesh of her inner forearm. Stop. You don't know what you're doing. Your sister isn't here. Don't listen. It's an imposter. I can't leave her alone. Danny wept, her tears spilling down onto her upturned forearm. The glass shard now hovered atop her pale, smooth skin. Without warning... One of the hearing aids flew out from the shattered cabinet, its hard plastic striking Danny like a BB in the temple. Her hand flew to her head, dropping the shard as she stumbled backwards. Her flat slid across a patch of wetness, a small puddle of her own blood. The world spun out from below as the back of Danny's head bounced off the floor. As she drifted into blackness, a voice cooed out from the hearing aid that lay next to her ear. Hush now. We're all done. You're going to be okay. Just hold on. Danny woke in a room of clinical white light. She blinked, gazing across the starchy bedsheets to see her parents sitting at the bed's end. They smiled at her with glassy eyes, rubbing her legs through the thin sheets. Her mother shot up from her chair, smothering her with a painful hug. Oh, Danny, thank God. Thank God you're all right. A strange static sounded, a muffled radio tune. Under the warmth of her mother's embrace, Danny lowered her eyes, looking down the path of her bandaged arm to the rock of her clenched fist. She let her fingers fall open, revealing the piece of molded pink plastic stuck to her palm. The hearing aid hissed, a shrill garble screaming out at her from the tiny speakers. Danny, what about? Without a second thought, Danny turned her open hand, letting the tiny device clatter to the hospital room's floor. She wrapped her mother in the tightest hug she could muster. Where do you think you're going? There's more story to come! <laughs> Don't you want us to keep the lights on? <laughs> and now, Dirt and Iron, written by Nora BPV, narrated by Heather Thomas. I stood in the morgue, my hands cradling my stomach, sheltering the baby inside me. 
Nobody knew I was pregnant. A tiny child lay on the sterile table, waterlogged and bloodless. Her chest revealed deep gashes. I didn't want to pull the white sheet back further. Stomach acid assaulted my throat, burning my nostrils, and I swallowed, tears in my eyes. I've seen enough. I turned away, wincing as the heavy steel door slammed shut. In the harsh lighting, I felt vulnerable and exposed. What else was found? A bunch of decapitated rabbits and four dogs. Another morgue locker slid open. And this. I glanced at the drawer's contents. My god, what is that? The corpse, slimy and matted, resembled a medium-sized canine with the skull of a reptile. The stink of rancid skunk polluted the air. My hand went to my throat, my fingers twisting the petite jade beads Holly gave me on our anniversary. I see why you called in Milwaukee area paranormal investigators. Right now, the town thinks we're dealing with a pack of rabid coyotes. But, as you can see, we are dealing with an unprecedented monster. Shady Lake Resort hadn't changed much as I pulled up to the rec hall in my bug-splattered Corolla. Mac waited for me, his Irish setter Mazzy grinning by his side. Mac. I accepted a hug from him, breathing in the familiar scent of lawnmower oil I remembered from childhood. For a split second, an image of Mac and my father drinking a cold beer and playing cribbage flickered. We were all sorry to hear about your father, Amber. I put you in your usual cottage. She's been renovated since your last visit. Thank you, Mac. It's good to be back home. We walked together, pine needles soft beneath our feet. I'd like you to keep Mazzy. Dot and I are staying down the road, but I'd feel better if you weren't alone. I've already moved her things over and... I stocked the kitchen with the groceries you requested. Mac, I can't take your dog from you. Nonsense, I insist. If anything happened to Dick's daughter, I'd never forgive myself. Can't be too careful in these woods. And the weatherman says we got a big storm coming in tonight. Dot put some extra wood by the fireplaces and an extra blanket on the bed. It still gets chilly up here before summer really settles in. He winked. It was just past six. Mazzy and I had retreated to the bedroom. A fire crackled, warding off the night's chill. The room smelled musty. A storm beat its angry fists against the windows. Slashes of lightning backlit the pines between dramatic cracks of thunder as water streamed down the windows. Mazzy whimpered and settled her head in my lap as I adjusted my glasses to better read my iPad. Mary, my good friend, was FaceTiming me. Mary worked for the timber industry in Rhinelander and was from the Ojibwe Nation further north. I answered her video call. Hey, chickadee. How's Rhinelander treating you? Mary asked. Like I never left? I said. I got a chance to look at those pictures you zapped me. And? I asked. You're not going to like what I tell you. A large boom of thunder shook the cottage, followed by three skeletal fingers of lightning reaching towards the resort. Mazzy growled, and her ears stood at attention as she bolted from the bed and pointed towards the window by me. I have to go, Mary. Something's up. Don't go outside. I shut my iPad and sprang from the mattress, drawing my robe closer. Mazzy barked once, Quiet. I drew back the lacy curtain with a shaky hand. The pine woods, darker than a new-filled grave, yielded no secrets. Lightning and thunder tore through the night again as I glimpsed the great silhouette of a lumbering beast 
with huge spikes running down its back. A thick odor of skunk churned my stomach. Mazzy paced back and forth, whimpering, her tail tucked between her legs. The creature dragged its heavy tail through the pine needles and muck. As it headed towards the shores of Shady Lake, it turned its massive reptilian head in my direction, and though I could not see its eyes, I felt them pierce mine. I let the curtain fall back in place and ordered Mazzy into bed with me. To my surprise, I managed to fall asleep and woke to a warm, wet tongue on my cheek and my cell ringing. I groaned, pushed Mazzy aside, and groped for my phone on the nightstand. Hello? Coffee incoming in ten. I'll meet you at the door with Mac. And, be forewarned, he's bringing an AR-15. I mumbled an incoherent response to Mary, tossed my phone on the bed, and was just tying my hiking boots when I heard a rapping at my door. Mazzy was too involved in her breakfast to greet anyone. I squinted at the two people on my doorstep, the screen door banging behind me. So, has our whole dad come to visit yet? Max smiled as I frowned at the rifle slung over his shoulder and took the cup of coffee he offered. Something was creeping about in the woods last night. I saw it heading for the shore. Did it smell like a skunk? Mary bent to inspect the bushes flanking the steps and plucked something from a branch. She sniffed, grimaced, and held up a wet knot of gray-green fur about two inches long. The last hodag was captured in 1893. It had a giant frog's head, green eyes, fangs, two horns like a bull, the body of a dinosaur, its spine and tail ridged with sharp spears. It preferred a diet of white bulldogs, though it also ate fish, and it smelled like skunk or rotting meat. It also breathed fire and smoke, like a dragon. Mac guffawed, following Mary as she led us into the woods. The Hodag is just a local legend. Further north, the Ojibwe speak of Mishipeshu, the Great Lynx, an underwater god with the body of a feline. Her back and tail are covered in scales, and she's described as a reptile. Mishipeshu blesses the fishermen and heals people with her scale medicine, but she also destroys boats by creating violent whirlpools and giant waves. Why would Mishipeshu be here? I ducked to avoid a low-hanging pine branch as we neared Shady Lake's shore. The morning birdsong swelled in stark contrast to the storm of last night. Because the children of Mishipeshu were threatened. Last week, I heard the loggers talking about a deformed coyote pup they shot. Mishipeshu is angry because we killed her baby. And she will not rest. Mary knelt, gesturing for us to be quiet. There's a cave a little way from here. Do you hear that? Max's hand tightened around the strap of his AR-15 as we craned our necks. I hear it. A gurgling, watery cooing and a trilling response. Mary nodded. Yes. Mac dropped his coffee and knocked me to the ground, spilling my cup as he charged ahead. Mac! No! We heard a volley of bullets. Mary dropped her coffee. Our ears rang as we hurried. Mac leaned against a tree outside the low entrance to the cave, panting and sweating. As Mary and I knelt, the beam of light from Mary's flashlight revealed the mother with her tail drawn around her babies to protect them. 
Shiny blood matted her thick coat and crept across the nest of dried leaves she'd built, traveling in channels along the stone floor. A large hole in her side exposed a broken ribcage, and the four tiny young huddled against her, their eyes wide open, holes in their heads or necks. One baby mewled, its teeth stained sanguine. It tried to lift its weak head before falling silent. The smell of dirt and iron was cloying and overbearing. Coffee and stomach acid splashed my boots as I squatted there. What if someone shot my baby? I caressed my stomach, sobbing and trembling as I wiped my hand across my mouth. Mac knelt beside us. I got them. You got them. And you have no idea what you've done. You've unleashed the wrath of Mishipeshu. She will come back. Mary glared at Mac and bowed her head in prayer. They're gone, Mac stood. What do you mean, they're gone? They can't be gone. I knelt and shone my flashlight into the cave, stealing my stomach for the sight of the slaughtered mother and children. But there was nothing, not even a speck of blood. Mishipeshu has gone back to the lake. Mary lit a sage smudge stick and sprinkled tobacco on the floor of the cave. Mishipeshu, please accept this offering of tobacco. Mr. Wind, please help Mr. Sage cleanse this cave from anger and violence. Mr. Sage, let there be light and love where there was darkness and fear. As Mary continued to pray, the air became lighter. Tears ran down my cheeks, and I cradled my stomach, thinking of the precious life growing inside me. Mac stalked off towards the beach. Mary shook her head. He disrespects Mishipeshu. I know, I whispered. I'm so sorry. It's not you who needs to make amends. Mishipeshu will come to collect her debt in her own time. Help! For God's sake, help me! Max screamed. Mary and I rushed through the pines to the shore, in time to see Max struggling in Mishipeshu's gigantic jaws. Crimson swirls spread as Mishipeshu vanished beneath the waves. We watched Mishipeshu's footprints on the beach transform into columns of twisting gray smoke and disappear. The lake stilled. Mac's tan fishing hat bobbed on the surface, and the blood in the water was the only thing left. Will she come back? I searched the horizon. We will have to wait and see. Mary said. Next up is Junie Proctor's Panties, written by Katie Jane, narrated by Nelson Piles. I knocked on the screen door of the modest farmhouse. It was dim until the man filled it. Beefy arms crossed over his denim overalls. Orshel Roberts? Who wants to know? I congratulated myself on removing the suit jacket and tie that went with my wrinkled black pants. This was not a man who would respond to a suit. He was much older than the picture I had in my out-of-date files. Well, boy, who wants to know? I'm Injured Cold. I work for Believe magazine. I came to talk to you about the windmill. Ain't been no windmills here for better than 40 years. 
I, I know that, sir. I'd, I'd like to interview you about the incident. You're the last surviving eyewitness, right? Orschel reached up with a hand covered in a hard, warty growth that bubbled over his index and middle fingers, forcing them together into a partial claw and removed his worn baseball hat. I suppose I am. Never thought about that before. There is more to the story about that day, isn't there? I suppose there is. I'd like to talk to you about it. He faded into the darkness of the house and reappeared with keys in hand. The screen door slammed behind him, and he motioned to a faded blue pickup truck. Come on, boy. Let's go see the windmill. I climbed in and settled into the worn seat. We drove through town, which had a distinct lack of people. The schoolyard was vacant and boarded up. There had not been a birth in farmland, Iowa, since 1965. No kids, no school, Horschel said, seeming to read my mind. On the other side of town, we turned down a gravel road. Metallic pings chased us until we got to another farmhouse. It started here on the Proctor farm when the windmill collapsed. At least that's what the paper wanted us to believe, and that blue book GI man. It weren't like that windmill just fell, though. It stood a hundred years before I came in, and it would have stood a hundred more if it weren't for that drunk Martian man. Martian man? Orschel nodded and got out of the truck, beckoning me to the edge of a hill. Me and Junie Proctor was sitting under that big tree. He pointed with that warty claw to an old oak tree partway up the hill from us. Kissing under the stars... I sweet-talking that girl so hard her panties would have melted if I hadn't already gotten them off her. He smiled with Indian corn rows of teeth. That girl, rev a guy up. She got the Martian cancer and died. First to go, six months after the windmill. He dabbed the moisture from his forehead with a ragged piece of cloth and tucked his cap into his back pocket. He started toward the farmhouse and I followed. We're hot and heavy and we saw the flash. Brighter in the sun. That wooden door down there used to be a well. That's where the windmill was. That flash came out of nowhere and went streaking across the sky. Blew the windmill to bits. Good thing I was on top of Junie. Saved us splaining while she had splinters in her titties. My back got the brunt of that. Of course, it was only a fireball after the newspaper reporter wrote about. Truth was too weird. Weren't no fireball, it was a goddamn Martian saucer. Nothing left of the windmill but a pile of toothpicks. Stupid idiot must have been drunker than a skunk. Plowed right into the hill before he stopped. I squatted down, picking up some dirt and putting it in a baggie I retrieved from my pocket. It smelled like burnt aluminum foil. Didn't smell like that before the crash. I nodded. Me and Junie were in shock, I guess, just staring... The shiny saucer just sat there making all kind of weird noises. Then a hatch opened and a little green man climbed out. We could tell he weren't quite right. Crawled out real slow like, shaking his head. Junior screamed and he grabbed his head like his skull might split apart. The man was green? Was he wearing a suit or anything? Greener than my John Deere tractor, naked as newborn babe. Orschel limped over to the door that was bolted onto a pad of concrete and secured with a padlock. Junie started to go over to the Martian man, and before I knew it, he had his head in her lap. She's always a sucker for a stray, especially sickened. He made it sound like he was about to puke, and the next thing I knew, Junie's covered in bright pink snot. I reached for my hanky, and when it wasn't there, I looked down and picked it up off the ground. Martian closed his eyes and they disappeared flat into his head. So he was still alive? My report said there were no survivors. They don't ask if you're slow before they hand you those fancy degrees and set you loose on the public, do they? Of course he was alive. Keep up, boy. Judy was holding that big old Martian head trying to wipe herself off. That's when her daddy came out and yanked her up like a rag doll. 
That Martian man's head slammed down on the concrete slab and bust like a watermelon. You think that Martian gunk's got anything to do with everyone's cancer? I, I mean, everyone in town has got some kind. Most got this weird shit. He offered his hand. Damnedest thing, this started out as a warrant on my pecker. I, I thought I had to climb mid yet, but others got the inside kind that just eats you up. What kind did Juni have? They eat you up on the insides kind, laid a cancer, took her less than six months. Anyway, a little later that night, two guys all dressed in black showed up in sunglasses. Then the military type showed up chasing people off, taking pictures, setting up tents, tearing up the farm. Old man Proctor liked to blow the gasket. Pretty soon they loaded everything back up and left. People started getting sick right quick after that. Juno's family went first. Since then, there's been everything from booby cancer to gut cancer. This had also been in the report. Come on, boy. Or may will get us some grub. We returned to the house and I checked my watch, noting that the radiation counter was getting dangerously high. Ora May was Orshel's wife, and she brought lemonade. The warty growth covered one side of her face as well as big patches on both sides of her body, with two lobster claws instead of one. Ain't she the prettiest thing you ever saw? I nodded while Ora May flashed me a lopsided smile. Hey, I got some newspaper clippings from then. W would that help? Sure. Orsula went down a hallway and reappeared a few minutes later with a metal filing box. He set it on the table and handed me a key. I noticed that the little red radiation indicator light on my watch was blinking faster. Whatever was in there was hot. I flipped the lid and peered inside. On top was a fluorescent pink stained piece of fabric. I lifted it out and started to lay it flat on the coffee table. It crunched as I realized it was a pair of panties. Orshel jumped up and grabbed them. Best not to tell the missus about that. I always thought that was my hanky. He laughed. She thinks hers are the only panties I got ever gotten in. He stuffed the panties in his pocket. My attention returned to the clippings. Orshel began to make a sound like a hot air balloon filling. The shotgun pump made me look up. His face had begun to split in the middle. You're one of those guys that flashed us with your pen back then, ain't you? That's ridiculous, Orshel. I reached slowly for my pocket and tried to pull out my neuralizer without alerting him. Chunks of warty growth began to push out of cracks in his skin, revealing a lobster-like creature. He started toward me, his claws snipping furiously. I stood and yanked the neuralizer out, twisting the head to the zap setting. Orame joined Orshel, both fully shedding their human skins and clicking wildly. I pushed the button on the neuralizer and closed my eyes, covering my head with my arms as they exploded into a shower of thick pink goo. It rained for a full minute in the small living room. I pulled out another baggie, opening it with a puff, stepping over Orschel's head. Next to the pile of his loose human body, Juni Proctor's panties lay neatly to one side. I picked them up and smiled. Nothing left to do but call in the cleanup crew. Juni Proctor wouldn't be getting anyone else in trouble with her panties. Hey, where do you think you're going? There's more stories here at the Wicked Library. Stick around or we'll turn the lights off for good. <laughs> Our next tale is I Love Every Part of You, written by Scarlett R. Algy, narrated by Cynthia Lohman. It begins on a rainy Sunday. 
two days after her wife Olivia's funeral with her left ring finger. Melanie wakes to a weird little pressure under her ribs and sits up. And there it is, nestled into a fold of the sheet. The glossy magenta acrylic nail lying discarded to one side as though it's just politely excused itself. She picks it up with a mix of startled curiosity and a little bile hiking acidly up the back of her throat, sees the smoothness at the digit's base, and can't help noticing that her rings are still snug around it. The gap between her second and fourth fingers is silky and flawless. The skin above the bare knuckle dimpled and only slightly paler than the rest. She should worry. A part of her knows she should worry. A tiny voice in the back of her mind is already whispering, Oh God, oh God, oh God. But Melanie is still far too numb from Olivia's passing to regard it as anything more than a bodily quirk, a curiosity. So she gets dressed and wraps the finger in black crepe and drives to the cemetery and buries that part of herself, rings and all, in the shallow hole she can dig in the loose earth with two hands. You should be grateful, her Aunt Leslie had said at the churchyard on Friday, that the cancer worked so fast and Olivia wasn't in too much pain. Then Leslie had sniffed, in that way she had when she disdained something, and added in a mutter, You should be grateful you got a chance to find a man next time. As if, Melanie can't help thinking as she walks back to her car, picking clingy black dirt from under her nails, as if there's going to be a next time. On Monday afternoon, after tea and a nap, it's half of Melanie's blonde hair, fanned wide across the pillow, where it stays behind as she gets up. On Tuesday, she's standing in front of the bedroom mirror, gingerly brushing out the rest, when it all just tugs loose with a painless, not-quite-pop, a noise she hears only inside her head. No obvious flaws, no stubble, no bloody roots. Melanie sits on the bed and vacantly runs her fingers through the light gold strands the way Olivia had always done. Love every part of you, Olivia had said so many times, even at the end when she could barely speak. So the hair gets bundled into neat braid rubber banded at both ends and buried beside the finger. At least people will only think she's shaved it. On Wednesday, Melanie wakes minus three bloodless teeth dropped onto the slope of the pillow just beneath her chin, and her lower lip, the one Olivia had liked to bite now and then when she was in a certain mood, feels oddly gelatinous and unstable. Now that little voice in her head isn't so quiet, shrieking, Help! Something's wrong! So this time, Melanie wraps the teeth in a square of paper towel and goes to her doctor. She gets stared at by multiple sets of eyes, prodded with the end of a pen, not with fingers. There are scribblings and fake sympathetic murmurs. Are you eating? Do you feel well? Are you sure you haven't hurt yourself? To which Melanie just bows her bare head and holds out her gapped hand and says, Do you see wounds? Do you see scars? With a whistle through the gaps in her gums. Stress is the uncertain verdict, and a prescription changes hands. Melanie's staring at it in the car when the rest of her teeth shed in a rattling cascade that bounces off her knees, scattering onto the rubber floor mat around her feet, bouncing and clicking together like miniature mahjong tiles. It takes her half an hour to collect them all, to pick them out of crevices and shoelaces and account for them. By then... Melanie almost thinks she knows what's going on. She can practically hear Olivia beside her. I love every part of you. The soil mounded over Olivia's grave is rain-damp and fragrant. Melanie scoops out a hollow and deposits the teeth and says, You know you didn't have to be so literal. Then her quivering lower lip finally drops, jelly-like, into the hole. It's okay. Melanie hasn't felt like eating in days. She just shrugs and smooths it over and goes home to see what will happen next. What happens is Thursday. 
Her left arm and hand below the elbow. Four toes across both feet. Her left eye, too, the one Olivia had sworn somehow held so much more sparkle than the other. Melanie just gropes a plastic bag from the container in the kitchen, never before so grateful to be right-handed, and clumsily scoops everything inside except her eyelashes, which are fine enough to get lost in the high pile of the carpet. Melanie waits until after dark. She has to for this. The missing eye with its smoothly covered socket is just a little too much to try explaining if someone sees her. And she's just not talking to herself when she says, You always were a drama queen, Liv. This time, digging a proper hole is out of the question, so Melanie attacks the side of the heaped, drying soil with hand and feet, unsteadily carving out a place for herself. By the time she's made a space to burrow into, by the time she's clawing her earthen blanket down, the sky is growing light again, and she's left two more fingers and an ear in the dirt. The loosened earth crumbles over her, but Melanie just huddles in the hollow she's made, curled into the fetal position and breathing hard. She coughs out a sudden thick blockage in her mouth and realizes it's her tongue. Her skin parts and opens. One by one, her drawn limbs begin to loosen and disarticulate. Something detaches inside her chest. Melanie sighs with what's left of her breath, sagging wearily into the damp and dark. If she focuses, if she concentrates, she can almost feel Olivia reaching up for her, reaching for every beloved part. choices do you make in a day? In a year? In a lifetime? How many really matter in the end? Do you agonize over the small ones and avoid the important ones? Here on my lift, in this place where all things are possible, your choice matters. Your choices require sacrifice. Will you make the right one? Choose to listen to The Lift in iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, and now iHeartRadio. Closing out the show is Digital Olives, written by B. Renard, narrated by Mary Murphy. There was seldom any warning when Mr. Bleeker's screen would flicker to life. His floating visage perfectly preserved in high definition. There were no olives in my martini, Grace. The floating head rumbled irritably. A slight nasal twang to the words that had always grated my ears when he was up and walking about. I'd been a mere eighteen years then just an intern when the exodus had occurred. I'm terribly sorry, sir. The virtual module didn't mention a drinks menu, but I should have thought to check. The image sighed. Ugh, well corrected. I haven't had a decent cocktail since the Ice Age started. It's usually referred to as the exodus, I said carelessly, and my employer scowled. Sounds like something any Lotus would say. They're usually melodramatic about these sorts of things. There can't be an exodus if we haven't left. I bit my tongue, as I'd done for years, and tried to think gratefully of my employers stretched out in frozen beds upstairs to preserve their lives from the crop lights while they screeched about olives and the latest trends in virtual reality. Apparently, even uploaded personalities needed to socially drink. It was one of the first things they tried to replicate. But getting the specifics of taste and smell and the chill ice of a glass in your hand had taken almost six years of research. Stupid of me, 
not to check for olives. Of course, sir. I'm sorry. I'll take care of it immediately. Stick it on my account with them. I'll review it later. I've deposited your daily credit with Harold's Market, as usual. I think Dahlia might have some errands for you later, when she finished with the daily redundancy checks. Of course, sir. The screen flickered off again, leaving me standing in an impressive office that boasted a lovely view of towering skyscrapers and the sparkling river below. It was otherwise devoid of charm. But by now I'd spent so many waking hours here that I almost didn't see any of it anymore. Just the screens, the river, and the incessant demands for more. I took the elevator upstairs. Passing by Dahlia Bleeker's latest tire as I moved down the hall to check on the cryopods. She looked miserable, which is about what I'd expect. The Exodus, no, the Ice Age, hadn't sat well with everyone, and Dahlia was particularly cranky about it. Her first assistant had been with her for years, but it only lasted a mere six months after the wealthy, famous, and fortunate had fled to their digital Elysiums for refuge. Ever since then, she'd fired someone nearly every month for failing to meet her standards. If I'm being honest, I think she's just bored. Boredom is such a lavishly stultified privilege nowadays. Uh, excuse me, Dahlia's assistant said as I hurried past. I hadn't bothered to learn her name. It was obvious this one wasn't going to last any longer than the others had. Yes, I said coming to a reluctant stop. How long have you worked here? The girl asked, a slight wobble to her voice. I, well, I'm not sure Madame Bleeker is happy with me. I think she won't renew me for tomorrow. Well, at least this one is self-aware, I thought, then sighed internally. Come on, be nice. No reason to make her life worse than it already is. Almost seven years, I said. May I make a suggestion? She nodded, and I sighed. She's bored. They all are. They can't go to work, or dine, or entertain. So we bring it here. I don't want to be any lotus again, she whispered, almost too quietly to hear. Not again. Everyone has been in this house, I said gently too tired to summon as much empathy as I should have. That's why they send credit to the shops. Understand? You can't save what you don't have, and you can't bargain when five others would gladly replace you for even half of that. She's my fifteenth mistress this year, she said, drooping visibly. I didn't know what to say to that. It wasn't an unusual amount, not with daily contract renewals and store credit, but I understood the desperation. Mr. Bleeker's fired me at least every six months, but he keeps having me back, I said finally, because he realizes he'll just have to train someone again. But I have to get going, I said. The words sounded too abrupt, too cold. But I had to find those damned olives or face another spell as an e-lotus myself. Mr. Bleeker might be marginally more reasonable than his wife, but only just. Jobs were contracted on a daily basis now, and the wealthy selected their hires for the day. Like Dahlia picking 3D scans of her jewels from some memory chip. This one today, that one tomorrow. No, not that one. I used them last week. I turned away and fled into the nearest room on some imagined errand. By the time I'd composed myself and remembered the olives, a soft pinging noise was intruding on the typically silent quarters. The cleaning staff had already finished their jobs for the morning and left, wiping every speck of dust from furniture that was frozen in time. Everything spick and span like some unnatural dollhouse. It sounded like the cryopods were sending one of their maintenance alerts. So I shuffled down the hall to check on them, 
like I'd meant to do before Dahlia's servitor had stopped me. The chill room was immaculate as always. Pods neatly lined up and plugged into a veritable spider's web of sensors and power couplings. I'm sorry. I tried not to jump out of my skin and failed. Dahlia's servitor stood there, tears running down her face, eyes empty, and I darted a glance back at the pods, finally seeing the neat order of Jim Bleeker's cabling and the unplugged chaos of Dahlia's. The pinging died down to a nearly steady wail as a pod began running critically low on power, and I stood there, as frozen as my employer's. Dahlia's still in the network, I finally said, almost conversationally. They all are. And now they can stay there, she said, voice flat. I thought of the years, the elotus, the day after this one and the one after that, those damn fucking olives. And I reached for a cable. The music for The Wicked Library is composed by Tony Rosick. The showrunner and producer is Daniel Foytek. Executive producer and editor is Scarlett Algy. Executive producer and creator is Nelson Piles. Art and social media director, Jeanette Andromeda. And as always, our resident corpse, the librarian. The Wicked Library is a ninth story studio production. Please visit us at thewickedlibrary.com. Hello, kiddies. So, you want access to the Wicked Archives, do you? Well, it takes money to keep the lights on and keep our beasties fed. Trust me, you don't want them hungry. They might just start eating the writers and then where would we be? Visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash wicked library and pledge your support to the show. For $2 a month, I'll give you a key to our collection of classic episodes. For $5 a month, I'll let you hear the bonus stories before the rest of our listeners. Even more tantalizing rewards await for those who want to sacrifice more to us. <laughs> Over 70 classic episodes are lurking deep in the private area of the library, just waiting to be heard by you. Pledge yourself to the library today, and you'll be ours forever. You're going to like it here, I think. <laughs> How much is it for people to enjoy the private area of the librarian, Dan?